0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker is off this week, but we are delighted to welcome Will Salatin of Slate as our guest. All right. Introduction. This week, the House of Representatives made Donald Trump the third president in U.S. history to be impeached by the House. And uh, because it's routine in our reality TV world, Trump sent Nancy Pelosi a six-page ranting letter filled with self-pity and the usual, maybe fewer than the usual number of falsehoods, but quite a few, um, and then he reprised this performance at a rally um, at, uh, in Michigan as the House was voting. Um, Republican House members denounced the proceedings and compared Trump to Jesus on the cross. Uh, Mitch McConnell announced on Hannity that he will coordinate completely with the White House counsel about how to conduct the Senate trial which led Nancy Pelosi, this is the most updated news, uh, who I think must have been listening to our own Charlie Sykes, who uh, recommended that possibly they might want to hold the articles and not send them on to the Senate if the Senate is just going to be a rubber stamp for Trump. So anyway, she's holding it and so far and we're waiting for a decision uh, from her. And then meanwhile, as Bill Galston would probably remind us, the polling suggests that the whole drama has not moved public opinion At all. So um, I'll throw things open. Uh, Linda, if ever a president committed an impeachable act that was abundantly proven, I think we've got one here. Um, But um, how much of the debate were you able to stomach yesterday? Well, I had it on the entire
1: time. (laughs) However, I made liberal use of the mute button. (laughs) There were several people, um, unfortunately, of my own party whose voices I have become I don't know just uh, I find them toxic they they make me do crazy things I start screaming at my television <laughs> and I have an African gray parrot and my parrot starts imitating me and it's very unattractive <laughs> so uh but you know you mentioned that letter that was sent and I have to say you know we laugh about it we we talk about the all caps and all the exclamation points and the falsehoods and misrepresentations in it but it was seriously deranged. And I think everyone, and most especially Republicans, should be concerned that this man literally has, you know, the, the football. He could decide to do something incredibly erratic and start a war. Uh, the guy is really off his rocker. And when you watched him in that two-hour performance. I mean, he, he acts as if he thinks he's Fidel Castro, whose speeches used to go some, I think, sometimes six or eight hours. But, you know, it's just- This one
0: went too This was pretty, pretty much into uh, into Castro territory. Yeah,
1: it was, I, I, I agree with Nancy Pelosi. We need to, those of us who are believers need to pray uh, for the mental
0: health of this man. He's a danger to all of us. Well, Bill, he says that when Nancy Pelosi says that she's praying for him, that she's lying, um, I guess one of his powers as president, which, by the way, he thinks that his power as president means he can do anything. I guess he thinks it means that he can see into the soul of another person and know when they're being sincere in their statements and not. But since he's never sincere, I guess that sort of throws things into further confusion. But... um, but uh, what do you make of the letter? Is it, is, it, um, is it evidence that he's unhinged or is it evidence that he just simply has no editor and he just vents? And this is what you get when you have a spoiled rich kid who uh, is, has a disordered personality.
2: <clears throat> In office, he has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Mm. Like uh, the Bourbons. Exactly. Exactly. I have to say you know talking is one of the things that I do for a living words fail me what is there what is there left to say uh, and uh, my prayer is that the country's institutions can survive this battering and that there will be a peaceful transfer of power in 13 months. Uh, If that prayer is not answered, uh, all bets are off.
0: So, Will, what you'll hear from Republicans and some people who used to style themselves conservatives um, is that this is purely um, a partisan witch hunt that the Democrats have been out to get Donald Trump from the very beginning. And it's it's true that some Democrats introduced impeachment right at the very beginning of the administration. There were some Democrats who were eager to impeach him even long before this. Um, but, um, but how do you think those arguments hold up?
3: Well, uh, first of all, I, w- I wanted to say something about the... Um that I thought your analogy of no editor was quite interesting. That That's actually, because, you know, we're all sitting here saying the president of the United States is crazy, this, he's a terrible person. And that's been true pretty much all along. I th- he, so the analogy would be he's a bad writer. But bad writers can be covered up by good editors. And he was covered up pretty well at the beginning of the administration. He had decent editors. And what you've had is a loss of the editing, right? You've had, we've gone, there's no more John Kelly now there's Mick Mulvaney and basically the people who stood up to Trump, the people who reined him in, the people who uh, were – I mean, you couldn't take away his phone. So you, people could always see how awful Trump was in person. But uh, you didn't used to get a, a, six page, a, a long letter from the president showing just how awful he was. And or like
0: so- the letter he sent to uh, – um, sorry, um, to uh, Erdogan. <laughs> Remember, where yeah, you had the sense that if John Kelly had still been there, that would right. not have happened.
3: Right. It used to be that there was – on Twitter, they used to do a thing where they would take his cra- Trump's crazy tweets and they would turn them into a, a statement from the White House. And you could see how <laughs> ludicrous they looked in that form. Now that actually happens. Yes. Now you get things written on White House stationery, letters to Erdogan, letters to Pelosi that are – as insane as the tweets, just longer. Yeah. Um, so the, the problem is that Trump has gained confidence and he's gotten rid of the people who edit him. And um, so now you, I mean, you could make an argument that the entire Ukraine scandal, that, well, the funding part of it happened because Trump <laughs> got rid of the, because of Mick Mulvaney. You have mm-hmm. a guy in there who doesn't, who will let Trump do whatever Trump wants, doesn't really care about foreign policy, doesn't understand any of that. And we'll go along with the personal peeve of Trump in using the military aid and the withholding of military aid to exact uh, a a personal favor. So that's what worries me more than the underlying craziness of Trump.
0: You remind us um, that, you know, one of the things you kept hearing in these debates over the last few weeks during the whole impeachment thing is um, that this is purely partisan, as I said, and that uh, the Democrats are were just out to get him, and it's it's worthwhile remembering uh, that first of all, there were no articles of impeachment considered until the until the Ukraine thing happened, exactly because the Democrats made a prudential judgment that as bad as he was, uh, impeachment was not was not the remedy. Um, and uh, I, I think the Democrats actually felt cornered and felt that they had to do it after Ukraine. Uh, Certainly, Nancy Pelosi was not an enthusiast for this, um, Mm -hmm. as we know. But the thing to remember, since you mentioned John Kelly, is that he specifically said, and he was honest about this quite recently. He said, I told Trump that after he left as chief of staff, he said, I told him, if you get a yes man in here, you're going to get impeached. Now. Was that because he was was he saying you're going to get impeached because the Democrats are so unhinged that they won't be able to help themselves? No, he was saying you're going to be impeached because you're going to have free reign for your base instincts and your terrible judgment and you need someone here to rein you in. That was, that, I, there's no other way to interpret. And, and, in, and
1: in fact, you know, I think both you and, and Will are onto something talking about editors, but it's more it's more about people who are, in fact, willing to uh, uphold the institution and see the difference between the institution and the president. I mean, look at the difference in White House counsels. Don McGahn, for whatever you think of him, said no. I won't do certain things. He wouldn't do it. Cipollone will put his name. He'll sign a letter that was clearly dictated by Donald Trump Mm -hmm. with all of Donald Trump's craziness in it. And there just doesn't seem to be a single person in the West Wing who is able to tell this man that he is hurting the country and also harming himself i mean that's the bottom line is this doesn't help him you know those suburban white women whom he's going to need to vote for i don't think they were very impressed that that he said john dangle was in hell this week and and said it you know christmas week when debbie dingle is you know spending the first christmas without her beloved husband uh this is nancy pelosi had the best line i've heard uh this morning in her press conference she said Cruelty is not wit, and just because people laugh doesn't mean it's funny. Mm.
2: Well, yeah. not a lot of people laughed actually. That's yeah. the good news. That is the only here's, good news. Yeah. Here's the bad news. You know, while we're agreeing among ourselves at this table, precisely half the country looks at these events yeah, I was just get to that. and oh. sees an entirely different reality. Right. Uh, We have reached the point where one person leaves the building, looks up at the sky, and says it's blue. And another person leaves the building, looks up at the same sky, and sees an entirely different color. Where do you take the conversation when we've reached this point? Right. See, uh, or to put it in more quantitative terms... Not a single Republican member of the House of Representatives broke ranks. Not one. That well, was
0: arguably one broke ranks by leaving the party a few months ago. Sure, and,
2: and you know, yeah. and a Democrat in effect broke ranks by leaving the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and going in the other direction. But to not just a first approximation, but to a second and third approximation, mm-hmm. uh, we have. Uh, one political party that has arranged itself around a particular view of the world, another political party that's arranged itself around the opposite view of the world, or at least a very different one. And we need to think really hard about how we get out of this because there's nothing we can do as a country when we're in this situation, nothing.
0: Can I just um, suggest that another thing that I kept hearing, and you hear all the time, is those people in Washington, they're so divided, they're so polarized, those people, but it's not those people, they are responding to very clear market signals that they are getting from their constituencies. It's the people themselves who are divided, partisan, bitter, estranged. And that, of course, is partly a consequence of technology, of the fact that people can cherry-pick what they want, where they want to get their news from, and how they, what they want to hear. And they constantly want to hear things that reinforce their own prejudices, as we've said so many times. But it is not a, a Washington-specific problem. It's our society— that has become completely bifurcated um, and quite insane. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, the look, I, we can argue about the Clinton impeachment, and I think we probably would disagree about the Clinton. You were not in favor of Bill Clinton's impeachment, I don't think. Um, but I was, and I felt that there were certain lines you don't cross, and that it's a bad precedent, and that you have to uphold high standards, and that you know, perjury and, and obstruction of justice, I think witness tampering, those things are beyond the pale. And yes, the economy was roaring and all that. But I thought that the fact that the Democrats rallied around Bill Clinton uh, was, was not good. On the other hand, you did not see Democrats at the time. Well, first of all, Clinton did feel the need to apologize mm-hmm. for his behavior. He made a full apology, however insincere you might think it was. It doesn't <laughs> matter. He did it. Um... And um, and so so he felt the need to apologize. But also Democrats at that time, things had not gotten to such a pass that, you know, though they did vote with him. They didn't say that his behavior was great, that it was a perfect call, that 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 he's Jesus, that he's our savior. I mean, my God, the, the the cultishness and the mania of the Republican Party and its echo chamber you know the in 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 talk radio and and in the conservative world is beyond belief and i believe now i'm ranting but i feel strongly that this is a major change from the way things had been this is not you know people are constantly dunning me on twitter and saying you built this you were you know <laughs> you conservatives you created this world the hell we did we stand for the things we've always stood for, but boy, everything. But there are fewer and fewer. But of us. But there are fewer so. and fewer of us. Right. And and one of the reasons we have this podcast is because we want a little island of sanity somewhere. But um, but I just I, I think that the the change is undeniable. What do you say?
3: Yeah, I, I think the the fact that you're being attacked is just just like you know you're all the same, right? You mm-hmm. you right wingers, whatever. That's part of the pathology that Bill's talking about. It's the the, the it's 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 not so much the exact color of the sky. It's that that everything is a completely closed, coherent worldview. There's my side. There's your side. Everybody on your side is the same. It's the same thing with racism, with anti-Semitism, with any kind of prejudice. You're all the same. Mm -hmm. And so there's a loss of nuance. And I think, Mona, your distinction between the Clinton impeachment and the Trump impeachment is very instructive. It's exactly on the point that Bill Clinton, however insincere he was, and he was plenty insincere, he created... He bent. He didn't break. Right. He said, mm-hmm. "I'm gonna, I'm gonna bend a little bit. I'm gonna give you a little bit of nuance. I'm gonna say I did something wrong, but not impeachable." Mm-hmm. Right. And the Trump impeachment is the opposite. It's like we're gonna say, "I, I didn't hear the whole debate, but I." Or in the morning, I remember Doug Collins, the ranking Republican on Judiciary, saying, "Literally, the president did nothing wrong." Right. Right. You have to. You have to. It's. It's a. It's a religious statement. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, so, and then we end up with Jesus and all that, um, and that to go back to Bill's point, I think that is the pathology. I mean, the pathology is, the, in the real world, things are complicated. You know, it, it's wrong, but it's not impeachable. Or uh, he's, yes, the economy is great, but the foreign policy is terrible, or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's this thirst to, f- to believe that everything is black and white that is the enemy.
1: Mm. The, one, the one person who did uh, say something mildly critical was Will Heard? Of course, I was extremely disappointed in Hurd because I thought he yeah. would be much more forceful. But he did say, you know, the foreign policy was a shambles, I think was the word he used or some synonym for that. And but it's not impeachable. He was the one person I heard. Now, maybe there were others, but he's the only one I heard who came close to saying, look, there was a problem here in the way this was done. But, you know, one of the things that has been lost that ha- has always been very important in, in Uh, public life is the notion of hypocrisy. Yeah. It used to be, hypocrisy used to be an unforgivable sin. But, you know, the old adage that hypocrisy um, is the tribute that uh, vice pays to virtue. Well, we can't have hypocrisy anymore if there's no such thing as, you know, virtue or vice. And that's sort of where we are now. There's, um, you know, they don't look at uh, Trump and see him as a hypocrite, um, or even think of him as, as, you know, they talk about him as, as uh, King David. I mean, a lot of the evangelical Christians make this point. Well, King David was a sinner, but, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's so frustrating. It's so upsetting. And you mentioned Doug Collins. Um, he is an ordained minister. And for him to get up there and talk the way he did, uh, I mean, he has to know that some of what he was saying, maybe not, he maybe doesn't believe all of what he was saying is simply untruthful. But... You know, he broke the Eighth Commandment in the Catholic
0: reading of it.
3: Well, the Doug Collins strategy is to talk so fast you can't think what you're actually saying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's been to the Jim Jordan school of uh, polemics. At least he keeps Um, his jacket on. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, you know, meaning no harm to any person, but I have to say the— These religious analogies can be a little tricky, right? I mean, if you're going to say that that, uh, Trump is King David, they might do well to remember that God punished David pretty (laughs) severely and his own son made war on him and Absalom uh, dies and the father is stricken with grief. So anyway, don't want to overplay that. The Um, record
2: will also show that he, King David delivered... An exquisitely Trumpian deathbed speech. <laughs>
0: what did he say on his deathbed? I don't remember.
2: He made a list of all of his enemies, oh. and he told Solomon to pump him off. Oh. <laughs> it's a it's a great moment.
0: Well, I guess that does i mean, you're convincing me. He does sound
1: good. yeah more and
2: more yes.
0: <laughs> all right, so so one of the things that um, that makes our great. Republic great is the checks and balances built into the system, as we all learned in elementary school. Um, one of the checks on the presidency is impeachment, but arguably it's the sort of thing that you can't do twice. And um, assuming that uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate, but it's a fairly safe assumption that he will be acquitted and he will, he will trumpet this as vindication. mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, And he will then feel completely Mm. emboldened to abuse power all the more. Didn't Um, didn't they try to impeach Johnson
1: twice? Am I wrong about that?
0: I don't remember that.
2: Um,
0: Well,
1: I'll look it up while you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) There's Um, a
2: question coming.
0: Yeah, the question is, um, if, if things go as we think they are going to go, are there no checks? Sure, on there this are. President? Okay.
2: The last remaining bulwark, if I may use that now, and that is the American people themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why the November 2020 election is the hoary cliche is finally true the most important election in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I have believed from day one that the Ameri- only the American people could put Donald Trump in office, and only the American people can remove Donald Trump from office. And the question is whether they will. I have to say, speaking as a political analyst, uh, I think his odds of reelection have improved perceptibly in the past two weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I see the White House being quite strategic in a way that it isn't always uh you know they cut a deal with the democrats on nafta 2.0 you know they cut a deal they cut a deal with the chinese on a a phase one agreement
0: a bad deal but we'll get back to that Uh, i
2: i look we're talking politics Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. and politically it will parse even if economically it won't uh the The global and U.S. recession fears that were really quite dominant six months ago have all but disappeared, according according to the evidence. Uh, Can I just
0: interject a statistic? 57% of Americans say that they are better off economically than they were when Trump took office.
2: And and so uh, if we don't, if we don't bumble into a war or a recession, uh, it is always an uphill battle to defeat an incumbent, less of an uphill battle in this case, because the president is literally his own worst enemy, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. But I, I am no longer sure that I would take an even money bet on the election.
1: Boy, that's depressing. You just uh, ruining my holidays. In still. case,
2: you, in, in case you hadn't noticed, the guy occupying the corner seat here, or this corner seat, anyway, is is not in a great frame of mind right now, yeah. uh, because the the American people have been battered and bruised. Uh, they were divided, but. They have been made more divided than they were and more divided than they had to be. It's as though as though you had a pile of iron filings and a magnet was dragged across it. Didn't have to be this way, but now all of the filings are lined up and image. polarized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the where I do disagree with you a little bit, Mona, there are there is, room for more unity on more things or more agreement, more compromise, given the right kind of leadership, than one would infer just looking at what's going on in Washington. That's not an article of faith. I have a lot of survey evidence to back that up, which is why it is so important that if there is going to be a new president of the United States in January of 2021, that that new president be the reverse of a partisan warrior, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. someone who regards national healing as not something nice, but something absolutely vital in the circumstances, even if it means setting aside or compromising some long-held views. Because if we can't manage to get back together, we can't do anything.
1: I take it you don't think Bernie Sanders would <laughs> would fit that
2: bill. We you know if I hear the word fight one more time, I'm gonna throw up. Mm. I've had it with fighting. And I think, you know I think the American people have too. Mm.
3: So can we count on fatigue? Well I mean I, I I'm with you in I agree with some of your pessimism, Bill. And I have I lost confidence after twenty sixteen that there was something magical about the people of the United States as opposed to some other country that would prevent the election of, a, of an authoritarian or... I'm not really sure what the brakes are anymore. Mm-hmm. But I wonder whether uh, sheer fatigue uh, with Trump... Uh, despite the... I mean, the, the economy definitely works in his favor. He, that's something he has now that he didn't have when he came in. People look at, Okay, he's been president. The economy's good. So he hasn't screwed that up. In fact, it's been fine. But he's so constantly abrasive and the Dingle quote is an example of that, do people at some point say, you know, we're just tired of this. We well, just like to be brought back that's, together.
2: That's that's the hope on the other side. The other way of telling the story is that any normal president with an economy like this would have ratings at least 10 points higher, approval ratings, than he, than he does. And that's what I meant by saying he's on, his own worst enemy. And... Uh, a candidate, and obviously I have someone like Joe Biden in mind, who holds out the prospect of returning to something like normality, uh, that could be a very attractive offer. It could turn out to be, you know, the ace in the hole. And so, yeah, that is, the hope is that the American people will throw out their hands and say, enough already.
3: The the reason why I I think of fatigue is because whenever I look back at um, data from 2016, I get depressed. And the reason I get depressed is... You know, we say, now you see what an awful person Trump is. And then you go back and look at 2016. People saw it then. They knew. Mm -hmm. They saw it, and they voted for him anyway. Now, maybe they were trying to stop Hillary, and that factor's gone. But the economy is better, and so what's the thing that's gotten worse? And the thing that's gotten worse is, well, we knew he was awful, but we've really had to live with it every day for the last three years, and now it's wearing on us. And and
1: maybe his being as unhinged as he is, I mean, if a few more of those two-hour speeches – uh, and and what comes out of them, it, it does turn people off. And I, you know, I will be not be voting my ideology come <laughs> November twenty twenty. I can't. I am a conservative. I'd like lower taxes, and and I'm not thrilled with you know the idea of Medicare for all or or, or many of the uh, programs that, that the Democrats are throwing out there. But that will not be the basis on which I cast a vote. And I think. I'm not alone. I and and I do think you know I, I I'm hardly someone who'd be thought of as you know an, an arch feminist, but I do think women in particular are bothered by this, this bullying, this nastiness,
0: the cruelty. Well, the polling backs you up on that completely. Yeah. I mean, women I can't think stand the guy. Yeah. Um. But this this leads us naturally into a discussion about tonight's Democratic debate. Uh, it's going to be the smallest one yet. Um. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who, by the way, voted present on both uh, impeachment uh, articles yesterday. Um, I, I've long thought that she, you know, with her love of Putin is a natural in the Republican Party now. <laughs> yeah. uh, she's looking for <laughs> so, a cabinet so, Yeah, or, or as too. JVL of, of the Bulwark put it, that uh, maybe it's going to be a Trump-Tulsi g- a ticket yeah, in uh, in 2020, um, which would shock me. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, But anyway, there's going to be a debate tonight. And and, um, so let's talk about the Democrats a bit. So, um, you know, the the debate season began really badly. It began with Democrats, first of all, trashing the uh, administration of Barack Obama as being far too... Conservative, um, and uh, they were competing with one another for you know no border, open, basically open borders, Medicare for all, free college for all, the Green New Deal, and on and on. Um, obviously, they didn't all say that. Joe Biden, you know, a little bit of breaks on, but um, uh, but then you know as as Biden's strength continued, uh, the the debate moved a bit. And people then began to zero in on Elizabeth Warren's uh, endorsement of Medicare for All. And she sank a little bit in the polls. And now she's talking, apparently, on the campaign trail about choice, uh, which is which is a, a climb down for her, a good one. Uh, but anyway, um, and uh, now you also have Buttigieg, who has sort of m- maneuvered into the centrist lane, though that's not where he began. Um, doing very well in iowa some polls have him in first place um so and it's not far now i mean it's not long now till the primary season gets going it's just a matter of weeks Um, 45 days there we go um so bill why don't you start so if Buttigieg were to win iowa and somebody else were to win new hampshire Mm -hmm. would joe biden's aura as the front runner be over
2: no okay because uh I think a, a very heavy discount has already been applied, at least by the political class, to you know his performance in Iowa, and New Hampshire. Uh, it would be it would be good for him to win in Nevada, which is you know n- neither. Neither impossible or even improbable. How much? How
0: long after New Hampshire is? We're there? talking
2: about one week, one week, one week, okay. one week. In other words, okay. in four consecutive weeks, you have Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South, South Carolina. Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, his firewall has been the African American vote, mm-hmm. not just in South Carolina but across the country. Right. South Carolina is the first place where it's going to make the difference. If he were to lose in South Carolina, his campaign would be over. Uh, But a loss in one of the primaries or caucuses preceding South Carolina would not be the end of his candidacy. Okay, but
0: you're anticipating, I'm assuming, the incredible, joyful, hysterical response that there's going to be in the press if Buttigieg wins Iowa, right? I mean, it's going to be off Mm -hmm. the charts. I am.
2: Okay. I am, and... It would. It would certainly improve his chances of prevailing in New Hampshire. The que- Buddhist judges
0: really doesn't New Hampshire like to do the opposite of Iowa? Uh,
2: Isn't
0: their informal motto "Screw Iowa"?
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to Walter Mondale's policy director, <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you that <laughs> New Hampshire was eager to build on Gary Hart's rousing 15% second place finish in <laughs> Iowa. He said bitterly and, and turn him into a winner. So no, not always. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and Buttigieg, you know, if somebody had gone into a laboratory and designed the perfect Iowa candidate, mm-hmm. they would have come out with someone like Buttigieg. And I, I, yeah, you know, I've always believed that he would do well there. Yeah.
3: Uh, what do you think, Bill? Uh, I, so I, I want to make the uh, the ca- I'm going to make the case for Pete Buttigieg. All right, I just wrote this piece in Slate today, so I'm I'm, I'm going from uh, yeah. going from. So first of all, he is doing really well in the early states. But it's not just Iowa. He's in in New Hampshire. He's at roughly in a tie for the lead in New Hampshire. And if he almost any b- bounce coming out of Iowa would give him a good shot. Now I don't want to. I'm, I, I'm working against interest here because I want to lower expectations going in if, if everybody thinks he's going to win them both then that's not good but there's a good chance he wins both of them he's He is in trouble in in, in uh, Nevada and South Carolina He doesn't I mean he, he would have need a major bounce to 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 recover there and I don't and I don't know exactly how it goes in there he does have money he could go on but anyway, the first point is he's, he's doing well in the early states and it's not an accident. those are the states where the, the voters are seeing the most of the candidates. And so he basically it shows you that he's connecting, um, which isn't. He was the mayor of South Bend, so it might have just he might have just dived if he if he, did, if he wasn't connecting. Second thing, he he does really well, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at general election polls here. I'm looking at if you put him up against Trump, he does really well in the industrial nor, uh, Midwest. He does in the three states: Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, he does very well, particularly with independents against Trump. Um, not as well as Biden, but uh, arguably better than the other two, uh, Warren and Sanders. Third thing, he does really well with independents, particularly in those states. People who are nonpartisan, who would, they're put off by Sanders and Warren, um, they don't see Buttigieg that way. They don't. They see him as more like Biden, more like somebody who can reach out to them. Uh, fourth thing, when voters are asked who's too liberal, who's too conservative, Sanders and Warren have fifty plus percent saying they're too liberal. Buttigieg and Biden are about the same, about 35%. Um, Buttigieg has a very good net in there. He, people like, do you think the person's about right? Minus the people who say they're too liberal or conservative. He's actually better than Biden on that score. Um, fifth thing, very high net favorables. People like him. Now, not, some people don't like him, but compared to the other candidates, his net favorables are higher. He just, he's a, an appealing person to them. And the sixth thing, and the most interesting to me is If you break down polling by who's paying attention, which voters are paying the most attention, you see a steady increase from the people paying the least attention to those paying the most. He goes uh, up almost exponentially. Now, um, you know, that might be an effect of the fact that he has high income, high education supporters. Those people pay attention. So it's not clear that all the causality is going that way. But no other candidate has this pattern And uh, it's quite – and you see it in favorables. You see it in how he matches up against Trump. And so there are a bunch of signs that indicate that the more people see of this guy, the more they like him. And so I actually think – I mean I'm afraid of – I agree with you all. Biden's a better nominee than Warren or Sanders. And if we end up with Biden, I'm okay with that. But I worry a lot about Biden's – I'm sorry to say his cognitive coherence, which I've seen – Bad signs of. Um, And I feel like he is going to get worse over time and Buttigieg is going to get better. Whether that nets out, I don't know.
1: Well, what it nets out to, Will, is the perfect solution. Buttigieg is the vice presidential choice of um, Joe Biden. You're going to put two white guys on the ticket? I think Biden does very well with blacks and Buttigieg doesn't and that's going to be a problem and and if the black vote doesn't show up I mean one of the problems in 2016 was that they didn't show up for Hillary the way they showed up for Barack Obama and it
0: is um, and May I interject mm-hmm. a little factoid that I just mm-hmm. is sticking in my brain um, so Obama won Michigan by 300,000 votes and um and uh, and and Trump won it by like six thousand votes. Right. So if those people had just shown if up, if they just showed up, it would have been a different election. So so that's part
1: of the problem, and and I think you know it's very difficult, in particular, for Democrats to deal with this. But the fact is there is still prejudice towards gay people in America, and the idea of a gay president, while it is acceptable to I think everybody at this table, um makes no difference to me. I think it does to some people, and particularly uh, to blacks, and I think to a less extent, but still some extent, Hispanics. And that's a very important part of the base of the Democratic Party.
0: Can I just throw in what I assume is, uh, what I think is the the alternate argument? People will say, look, um, when Barack Obama was running, people said, look, I have no problem with a black president. It's those other people over there that I'm worried about. You know, mm-hmm. with, with me, it's fine. Not that I'm not that I'm doubting you at all or, or at all. I know I know you're completely sincere, but sometimes we assume um that other people are uncomfortable with something they may not be i we just it's well, it's one of those things really that's... really bad yeah. in that well is that because they don't the, is, they don't the, the buddha people say yeah the buddha judge people say well they don't know him well, they and him they know and he's a known and I don't quantity think They like him in south
3: bend, actually right? that, that's it's not worse than any other city i mean okay. there's racial tensions in south bend there's yeah. police issues but it's it's the same that you'd see in san francisco or Newark. Or they have to it.
1: not just find him acceptable. They have to be enthusiastic. And, and the other thing is, what really about white out?
3: working class voters? It seems to
0: me that he's the great candidate of the upper middle class. But boy, I don't see his appeal among the people in the Midwestern states. Now, you said he did well there. But I, I mean, I wondered, is he going to yes. do well with those people who flipped from Obama to Trump? Well,
3: what the, what the one of the ironies of the Democratic primary is that it's true about Buttigieg's supporters being relatively sort of high income and high educated. But this whole debate about college funding—he's been on the side. He's the one who's been saying, "What about the people who don't go to no, college?" No, I know no, he has. He's he no, That's, that's good.
2: good.
3: I I think he 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 wants to connect with them, but I agree with you. His the thing that we don't know about this guy yet is, does he have? Uh, is his support unbalanced racially, education, income? Because he can't get the votes of. Blacks or Latinos or low, low or non-college people or whatever or is it just that he started with it the, there are some people who went to him right away and it's going to be more of a job to move out from there?
2: We don't know the answer to that question for sure. I have to say that I am I am struck by the clumsiness and ineffectiveness of his efforts to reach out to the black community right Warren has done a better job than he has. Uh, and there is a kind of tone deafness there that showed up right at the beginning of his of his stint as uh, you know uh, as the mayor, of South Bend. I mean I mean not not getting the fact that if you demoted an African American police chief you know, in a city where, what, 40% of the electorate is African American, that that might be a problem. I mean, it was sort of a, it's as though he was living in a kind of technocratic McKinsey bubble Mm -hmm. in trying to deal with that issue. And uh, it's not clear to me that his breadth of human experience is wide enough to encompass what the Democratic Party now is. Right? Uh, yeah, he grew up as a faculty brat. Uh, that's a species I know very well. I've one myself. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily enlarge your worldview. He's, well, he
0: did serve.
2: He's done so oh, yeah. as did I. Does that mean that I could reach out effectively to the African American or Latino community based on my experience? Hell no. I couldn't do that. I'd do a worse job than he's doing, but I'm not running for president.
3: Well, I mean, we, I, I, there are like arguments that I can make in this situation, but I, it's, it's kind of up to him. I mean, he, the, the thing about the police chief, that's a, that was a legal problem. There was a, there was a, a re- illegal recording problem in that. In that. But, but there are multiple things that have stacked up. And what I, what I worry about for him is that this becomes a self, self-feeding narrative the idea that he has a problem with blacks. I don't think he actually has a problem with blacks in a way that any other white candidate doesn't. I mean, he doesn't have Joe Biden's record on busing. He didn't claim to be a minority <laughs> when he was a um, like Elizabeth Warren. And so there are you know, other candidates have these problems, but this narrative has taken hold. And I think it's very much favored on the left of the Democratic Party, which is angry at him for for hurting Elizabeth Warren. And so that it just feeds on itself, but it's it's not. I can't make this for case. for obvious I mean, reasons. Yeah. that's, that's <laughs> not my motive for making the case, <laughs> right? But but it's kind of up to him. I mean, uh, and Bill, I take your point about the clumsiness. Um, the you know the camp there, the Buttigieg campaign, which is very well organized in other respects, you know, did things like claim you know representing people as having supported them in South Carolina who didn't. So they're going to have to work on this. The, I don't know if any of you saw the video of him. Go, There was a a writer at the root, Michael Harriet, who wrote an article. And yeah, and so uh, Buttigieg calls the guy up, and then they have a conversation, and then they have a a video. They have a whole interview on camera for twenty minutes, and
0: I thought that actually was quite adroit. I have to say,
3: yeah, and the fact that
0: he was willing to call the guy showed some.
3: So I agree with Bill that like it doesn't come naturally to him. He's not like Joe Biden. Actually, it comes more naturally. Joe Biden's like he just seems more comfortable with black people. Than Pete Buttigieg does, but when th- what Buttigieg has is humility. He just doesn't let his ego get in the way. He calls that guy up. He's been called. He's been uh, called an expletive in the headline of the article and in the article itself. He calls that guy up. They have a conversation. Then they sit and they have a perfectly civil conversation, and mostly there's a lot of listening going on. Mm-hmm. So I I, th- I think it's an open question. We'll see how how well he does. But I agree, he's got to do it. And.
2: Uh... If he shows the capacity for growth that someone his age surely has then then you could turn out to be right right uh, and the growth curve in other areas has been very steep in this area I think not steep enough
0: Can we talk a little bit for a minute about the the two candidates who together have you know what 35 to 40 percent of the um, Democratic electorate, and that is Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, If you had told me that you could have, you could be, how old is uh, Bernie Sanders, 78, I think, Mm -hmm. that you could be, a no, 77, 78, you could be a 77-year-old, have a heart attack on the campaign trail, and Keep going. And, and It turned I mean, out to be
2: a great career move. And
3: Mono, who
1: likes some young people like me, he's the favorite it's of young just, people. And, well, there,
3: there's so, a Pulitzer waiting for the reporter who finds out that Bernie faked the heart attack. <laughs> 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 um,
0: so we've talked to, uh, about Elizabeth Warren, but let's talk about B- Bernie's now having a, a little moment, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernie I'm sorry Bernie is a commie Bernie is a guy He's the Jeremy Corbin he, he is party. the Jeremy <laughs> Corbin I mean you know actually we were having an argument in our family that not everybody in my family leans to the right um in fact so one of my sons <laughs> objected that when we when we were talking about Corbin and we said you know there's there's a little bit of that in the Democratic party and he said ah oh, who in the Democratic Party, you know, has has uh, praised Venezuela? <laughs> we said Bernie uh, Sanders. Right. Bernie Sanders was a great fan of Hugo Chavez and uh, of Nicolas Maduro and um, he was a fan of Cuba. He's he was a, of course famously traveled to the USSR for his goddamn honeymoon. Honey. The man <laughs> is a lefty deep died. he has learned Stalinist. he is he has learned nothing nothing his entire life he has the politics of a college sophomore who's just read marks for the first time and is all excited and he doesn't know anything um and yet um this is the you know this kind of and what what is he pro- he's proposing medicare for all free college for all And, you know, full marks to Buttigieg for saying, why should we pay for college for, you know, Bill Gates, (laughs) et cetera. That's fine. Good for him. But but this is a really worrisome thing. And I'll tell you one more thing. Um, Bernie, like he's not nearly in the category that Jeremy Corbyn was in, is in as an anti-Semite. But Bernie, because he is such a creature of the left, has allowed people with very problematic, um, comments about Jews and so forth, including Linda Sarsour, who he's on platforms with all the time, um, to be, to be close to his campaign. Uh, this is, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes people who are Trump disgusted Republicans rear back in horror. Will, I'm, I'm tossing this to you. <laughs> uh,
3: well, uh, l- l- let me set aside the anti-Semitism thing because you were you were so many other interesting things in there. The, I, I am baffled at the Bernie-Warren relationship. I mean, I, from the beginning of this campaign, as soon as I saw Elizabeth Warren and I watched them side by side, I thought, why would anyone support Bernie in this? I mean, if you, if you have Bernie's politics, Elizabeth Warren is – first of all, she understands business. She understands mm-hmm. capitalism. She is a capitalist, right? Yeah. I mean – Oh, no, she is. She is. I'll I'll, I'll have that argument with you. But she's for regulating. You know, from a left point of view, she's trying to save capitalism. She's trying to—capitalism is a political system, not just an economic system. You need public support for it. The goods of capitalism need to be distributed fairly from the standpoint of people, or they will find something else. So I think—but she really, really understands business, economics, regulation. And Bernie doesn't. The weird thing to me about Bernie is Bernie doesn't seem to want the job. The job is to be president. Bernie seems to want to lead a movement. And that's fine if you if you intend to lose, then tell people that so they can vote for somebody who would actually do it. But if you want somebody to actually do the job, Elizabeth Warren seems to have designed an agenda that she would at least try to implement. I don't think she would get a lot of it passed. But she's interested in what would actually help people. So I'm a little bit, there could be some sexism involved in it. There could be sympathy for him because of the heart attack. But I am just astonished that she has tanked, and he has come up.
0: Mm. Bill?
2: It is surprising. On the other hand, hist- history matters. This is not his first time around this track. Uh, and he waged, you know, setting aside the substance of his campaign, he waged a gallant campaign against the odds four years ago, and, <clears throat> and came a lot closer to toppling the, the anointed nominee of the party than anyone thought possible, certainly than I thought possible. Uh, he he displayed a kind of full-throated conviction, for better or for worse, that is very rare, in, not just in American politics, but in small-D democratic politics around, around the world. Uh, You had a sense that he meant every word that he was saying, that he was holding nothing back, you know, that he was he was filled with moral passion. And there is a portion of the electorate in any country to which that ensemble of qualities will be intensely appealing. I don't find it hard to understand at all. He developed a strong emotional bond. With an important section of the Democratic Party in 2016, it did not go away simply because Elizabeth Warren entered the race. And I'll have to say that her clumsy mishandling of the Medicare for All issue provided some evidence for the allegation that he's the only one who really means it. Yeah, he's the sincere uh, right. one. Do you think so,
0: Linda? Well, what, and how I, I do you think, think this relationship between the two of them is going to get worked out? I mean, they one can only one of them, only can, one of them is going to win and, yeah.
1: and obviously, uh, and I don't think either of them are going to win the nomination. But I think Will hits on an important point. I think that Bernie is the leader of a movement and he has many of the qualities of a kind of you know demagogue in the way that Trump does. I mean, smarter uh, it's a different ideology, but he is demagogic as well, and it's one of the things that frightens me about him. Um, I just, you know, there there are certain things that are appealing about him. I always wonder if one of the reasons young people like him is that they, you know, they think he's Larry David on SNL. Uh, one sort of wonders if Larry <laughs> David had not sort of humanized and, and satirized and made you know so funny the Bernie Sanders character, uh, how appealing he'd be. But um, his policies are truly um, left, and not, and not just democratic socialism. I, I mean, that, look, I, I, in my youth, you know, I think I was a member of the Young People's Socialist League. There's a debate about whether or not I really very few
2: self-respecting not, conservatives work, were not. right, but but you know, th- <laughs> is this isn't this isn't, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't. this
1: isn't. You know, this isn't about socialism. This is about, and you know, I like I said he's a Stalinist. This is about, you know, supporting the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. um, and that's very different. I mean, he's not a you know a Scandinavian style social democrat um that's not where his heart is so i think he's a danger uh, obviously this will be his last campaign These days, i'm not sure i thought of <laughs> I did. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> weekend at bernie's <laughs> i don't know i mean i have family members who love bernie sanders not mm-hmm. not my immediate family i should mm-hmm. make sure but but I have cousins who, you know, they worked for him. They worked on his campaign. They love him.
0: Yeah.
3: it's You know, well, it's funny. It's like that's the other side of the coin is like I look at Bernie and I think, oh, my God, what an ideologue. What, he always says mm-hmm. the same thing. And other people look at Bernie and they're like, he always says the same thing. What an honest man. What, yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. And he really he scores very well on honesty mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. can't be politically calculated. He's just he's got a line and he's sticking to it. Yeah. Well,
1: because he is a true ideologue. He's That's true what ideologues That's, do.
0: That's for sure. He is a true believer. Uh it's just that he's never learned anything, um, as we were saying earlier about about others. Um I I would just um I, I think he's I think he's frightening in the in his uh, uh his ignorance and the things that, that, that he believes. I mean, I, I just I really do think they're dangerous ideas. They're the kind of ideas that lead to widespread suffering and poverty. Um, And human rights abuses, and they're they're terrible. Yeah, things didn't work out so well in Venezuela. Although we seem to have totally forgotten Venezuela, it looked like, you know, we were interested for a nanosecond. Yeah. Um, But I I do just want to add a little footnote to something that you said, because uh, it's by way of confession, and I'll I'll do two confessions. Hmm. So the first confession is that for the last number of years, I have always characterized Trump as being stupid. Um, And I don't think I should do that anymore I don't believe it anymore I think he's obviously unbelievably ignorant about our history and about, and certainly he's a man of low character, but I don't think he's stupid. I think he does have this kind of feral intelligence where he understands very well how to manipulate other people, how to dominate the news, how to seize the moment in a way that very few other public figures have been able to match. He is indefatigable. Um, and, um, and so I wouldn't any longer say he's stupid. I just don't think that's right. It's, it's certainly not, he's not an intellectual, but, uh, but he has a kind of, um, he has a kind of raw intelligence of a kind. Um, that's my first confession. And my second confession is that on a podcast, not this podcast, but the podcast that I used to do with Jay Nordlinger, I remember, um, citing the fact that the um, FISA court issued reissued its um, its warrants for wiretapping um, Carter Page, or following Carter Page, or whatever it was they did, um, three times. And I cited this as evidence that it must have been legit. And I owe Carter Page an apology, because the IG report shows that the FBI did indeed mislead the court about what they knew. And um, in the one case, it looks Pretty bad. There might be some innocent in explanation for it, but it looks very bad that um, a lawyer actually materially changed an email, which was a, an official record, mm-hmm. in order to um, in order to get one of those warrants. So I was wrong about that, and I uh, just think that Page deserves an apology. And I think it's good. All right. So now on the institution point, you know. Trump does awful things all the time, never apologizes, never recognizes his own errors. All the people around him refuse to recognize his errors. And that's one of the problems. You have to have certain standards that you're willing to stick to um, and and uphold them no matter what. And I do think it is at least somewhat healthy that we've seen Christopher Wray, who is the head of the FBI, saying that these problems were, are very serious and will be looked into. And um, and you have people like McCabe and others who are agreeing. I don't know about Comey, but others. Oh,
2: Comey threw in the towel. He's he he said I was wrong. Oh, he did. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Good. He did on
1: Fox, didn't he? Didn't he do with Chris Wallace? I think it was. Okay.
0: So, and that's that's what we need. I mean, that for for institutions to be strong, they have to be willing to be critically, you know, to examine themselves, to accept criticism, and to and to reform. But it's more than that, Mona, because. It's like the case where you find
1: out that, you know, a lab that was doing uh, results for, you know, crimes. Well, uh, the material, FBI lab The was. FBI <laughs> lab, right, right, the FBI lab. So it, it, what happens is then it calls into question every other warrant, FISA warrant yes. that has been issued mm-hmm. and what was the standard and di- did they have proper predicates in each of those cases? And it ca- it casts a suspicion over everything that the FISA courts have done. And it, it's so deeply, deeply damaging. Um, you, you almost cannot uh, overemphasize it. And, you know, Carter Page, yes. Carter Page, I never quite understood the Papadopoulos and Carter Page, that these two sort of doofuses, could you know be Defi. considered the, the Defi. Defi, <laughs> Defi. Yeah. could could be considered uh, pol- foreign policy it advisors. For, it could be
2: forced declension. <laughs> <laughs> <a>, Dufus, Dufus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I you know I I I, I do feel bad. High badly school Latin comes surging back. He was
1: uh, <laughs> he was he he was sort of hapless in this, but it, it's a much it's much bigger than apologizing. It's. It's calling into doubt everything we we thought we supported in the way we're fighting the war on terror and the ability to get these warrants.
0: OK. Can I just add one thing, though? Um, I spoke to David Priest this week, and um, he clarified that the IG report, though, did say that the investigation predated the Steele dossier. So oh, So the I idea that, that the yeah. Steele dossier was the origin of all this and that, therefore, it's the right. poison no, it fruit of it, that's not true. Not bad. Not no, it's
2: no. Please, Will. Uh, that is true, but the IG's report also made it clear that but for the steel dossier, they wouldn't have gone forward yes, that's with true. the yes. FISA warrant yes. request. And yes. that is not a trivial point. And I have to say, I was surprised and shocked mm. to learn that.
3: That was one of my many
2: nasty surprises that I had as I read. But I, Will.
3: I love this. I, I love this report. And I, I loved it because it it sort of broke through the spin of both sides and it, it got at mm-hmm. the reality. Mm-hmm. The, the invest- we're gonna talk to people, we're gonna look at whatever documents we can, we're gonna tell you what a- what's actually true. What turns out to be true is everybody was wrong in at least some respect, right? right? And so th- th- my takeaway was, Look, Carter Page was just a doofus, as you said. He he was just an idiot and they may I don't know if they thought something. they were they, apparently the US intelligence was using him anyway. Everybody knew he was an idiot. So they the US intelligence knows that the spies are going to go after the idiot. Maybe that's why they're tapping him, but he was he wasn't do he, he so at the same time, that's just Carter Page. There was all kinds of other scuzzy connections going on between the Russians and the Trump campaign but it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. And it should be okay to say, um, look, we got this part of it wrong. This other part, we got wrong in the other direction. We didn't realize how bad it was. I thought it was terrific that Comey went, um, that Jim Comey went on Fox. And I loved his interview. He said, you know what? I was completely wrong. I thought the institutions and the FBI were strong enough to prevent this kind of abuse. Obviously, I was wrong. These days, I'm just happy to have a public servant who is self-correcting uh, mm-hmm. who says look we, we're gonna fix this so to the extent that Ray has come in after him a Trump appointee but apparently you know at that point people <laughs> who were choosing Trump appointees were, were still good you know he's 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 gonna fix this and I agree with all of you about the civil liberties aspects of this the abuse of the FISA court so that's something that the left has to realize they just got wrong
0: speaking of things the left gets wrong um, let's talk just for a few minutes about the British election um, because, uh, this was a case where, um, you had the largest pickup of seats in, I think, 75 years, um, uh, for the Tories, or there were certain seats that they won, they haven't, they haven't run 75 years. Um, it was a complete repudiation of Corbyn, um, which I, both as an American, as a, a liberty-loving person and as a Jew, was very happy to see. Um, I don't know how much his anti-Semitism played into the results, but uh, but it was a very good day for British Jews, some of whom I have spoken to. And uh, the polling on the discomfort among the British Jewish community was really, really amazing. I mean, there was huge numbers who were considering leaving the country if he became prime minister. Um, and... Um, So, but um, I think what what Joe Biden said, you know, it's gotten a lot of pushback, but I'd be curious to hear what you all think. Biden made a comment the day of the British election, said, this is what happens if you go too far left. And the Democratic Party should keep this in mind. Um, Is it, is that too facile or is that fair? What do you think, Linda?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think it is fair, although I don't think there's anybody, well, I guess Bernie Sanders and Corbyn, yeah. Uh but um but there <laughs> while I absolutely am, am pleased that the Tories did well, um I am, you know, concerned about it sort of portending badly for our election. I mean the the whole Brexit thing did precede the Trump phenomenon. And Boris Johnson um is not Trump. Um but, you know, he's he's got some of the same qualities. And no, the polls, you know, did not show the kind of victory that that we saw in uh, in Great Britain. So, I I'm just hoping that it doesn't uh, isn't the the future that we're looking at in a re-election of Donald Trump.
2: My reading is that what Biden said was a piece of the truth, but not necessarily the dominant piece of the truth. Uh, uh, the the anti-Semitism was linked to the leftward movement but is distinguishable from the economic leftism of the classic socialist manifesto that that Labour put out. Then Corbyn himself became increasingly unthinkable as the prime minister. And so he made a bad situation worse for his party But what was really decisive, I think, is that on the defining question of the election, the Labor Party had no position. Mm -hmm. They tried to change the subject. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. You know, if the electorate thinks that X is the issue on the table, to have no position on that issue is basically to forfeit the election. And that's what Labor did. They, you know, you know unlike unlike the Tories who finally cleanly resolved a decades old tension with the, with uh, within their party and were able to go to the people with an absolutely clean unmistakable unrepentant unnuanced message, labor was a muddle, and I think that was the most important reason why they lost
0: well the um the Tories have um They've certainly changed since Margaret Thatcher's time, um, <laughs> and uh, you know David Cameron m- was very, um, you know, comfortable with the welfare state and so forth, and and uh, and certainly Boris Johnson is the the, the new Tory party is is um, nationalist in the sense of backing Brexit and being anti-immigration, um, but is um, leaning more towards social democrat in its. Um, in its position on social welfare programs and so on. So um, is that is that how you see it?
3: Yeah, I I, I think that they've picked up. The, this formula is working everywhere. It's working in Europe. It's working in the United States. It's to, to play to certain sort of, you talked before, Mona, about feral intelligence, sort of understanding that people have certain tribal <laughs> There's a certain kind of tribal underbelly to, to human beings, and so the immigration stuff plays to that. All kinds of nationalism plays to that, and at the same time, on most economic questions, people are what we would call to the left, right? But mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's hilarious to me that the, the the Tory victory absolutely vindicates the single payer right. I mean, in this, it's it's such a weird, it's a very weird concept to try to absorb that in the United States. Um, so I don't. I don't take it as a direct warning. The one thing that I do take it as a warning for is the Labor Party f- had an opportunity here because of Johnson's various screw ups to step in and become the the, uh, the 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 dominant party and they failed. And I'm wor- I worry about in the United States, I think it's very important as our conservative party has gone haywire for our left party, our liberal party to step into the center and, and shoulder that burden. And, and so I don't want to end up in a similar situation where voters go to the polls as they did in the UK and they're like, you know, I don't want Boris Johnson, but I sure as hell don't want Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. So I feel like we got we to give them an option there. One thing I, I also want to say about anti-Semitism in, in the, the Labour Party, there is a certain kind of moral hubris that happens on the left where you think, look, the bigotry, those people are the bigots. The people on the right, and believe me, there are plenty of bigots on the right, and there you can see them in the Trump party. But it's very easy to think we're so enlightened, we're so intersectional, everything fits together, that you don't recognize that your anti-capitalist friends are you know, going after the Jews, that there's a certain kind, all kinds of hatred, all kinds of resentment can turn ethnic fast. And I think that's something where the Labor Party has been obtuse and derelict.
0: Right. Um, you know, the um, the person uh, that I have come to see as, as blazing a trail for finding that sweet spot in the Democratic Party that is being sort of liberal, and I don't agree with her on these things, but she, Nancy Pelosi is to the left on economic policies and so on, but she is always very patriotic and she frames things within religious. American religious. history religious. and she's religious. And, you know, so she doesn't, she doesn't send the same signals despite her having been sort of a boogeyman on, you know, for, for, um, conservative Republican advertising for a while. Uh, but, but in fact, if you listen to her, she, she finds a way to be, um, to be a patriotic religious American who is nevertheless on the left on economic issues. And I think if more Democrats sounded like her, they would have fewer problems with, um, with voters who, who's, whose principal motivation is a sense of grievance and uh, being, being despised by elites.
3: Um, I could, It's because of her deep grounding in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know. know. And she's a real woman of the people. (laughs) I know, yeah, right. Yeah, I think the fact that she's a
2: Baltimore girl, Mm -hmm. you know, the daughter of a really politically savvy mayor, the sister of a somewhat less savvy but still basically successful mayor. uh, She's a Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And She's
1: an old-fashioned Democratic Paul, the kind that, of Paul that I used to, you know, identify right. with when years and years and ago. It's
2: an honorable calling. I mean, she she understands that politics doesn't end with counting votes, but it sure begins there. And if you don't get that right, nothing else is going to matter very much. I underestimated her mm. completely.
0: Mm. All right, I guess we all did. Now, um, <clears throat> I wanted to get to our to something she did. Not so well this past week, in, in, a, in just from a policy preference point of view, and that's the $1.4 trillion budget. But we've gone long, so I'm going to leave that for another podcast and move now to our final segment, which is anything we want to talk about. Um, we frequently, I, I'm, I apologize in advance. Uh, I already apologized to you, Will, that I forgot to tell you this before we sat down. So if you don't have anything, that's totally fine. But um, we'll talk uh, about Either things from the other side that we agree with or just something we want to draw attention to?
1: Well, I guess I'd like to draw attention to something that's totally not political, and that is Good. we're heading into the holidays. I have never felt as un Christmassy mm-hmm. as I do this year. And a lot of it does have to do with politics. Um, I haven't put up my crash, I don't have a tree, I haven't bought my presents yet. Um, and. I think a lot of it is because of this frenzy that's been going on, that's been so distracting, seems so important. But, you know, to my family, to my kids, I better get busy between now and December 25th um, because it'll matter a lot more to them whether or not I cook the proper dinner and have the right <laughs> presents under the non tree.
2: Hear, <laughs> hear. I'm struck by the gap between what we're talking about and what the country seems to be talking about. Uh, The evidence is pretty clear, I think, that people in the country as a whole are much less riveted by these impeachment proceedings, not only than we are, although my patience for them is worn very thin, but much less than was the case 21 years ago during during the Clinton impeachment. Perhaps part of that had to do with the subject matter. I can tell you, mm-hmm. you know, my son, who was not a great reader at the time, had managed to download and read half of the Star Report <laughs> by the time I got home that afternoon. It was the only government <laughs> report sure that, that you had to put in a brown paper wrapper. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and part of it has to do with the fact there was some suspense about the outcome, which is conspicuously lacking in this case. But, uh you know i think of uh, and i'm not blaming official washington for this but we ought to be aware of the fact that the rest of the country is focusing on very different things
3: okay i'm going to i i have an idea right. uh, so this this is uh, this sort this is a light thing um, so the, on the subject of things from the other side in baseball right Everybody has their team. They don't. And I noticed because I listened to you guys talking about the Nationals and, the, uh, and, their, and their comeback and winning the World Series. I just want so you And you all wondered how it is that the road team won every game. And the answer is me. OK. <laughs> so here's what happened. And I, here's my situation. I am from the Houston area. So I am an Astros fan. But now I live in Washington. So I'm a Nats fan. And I had no idea. That might, I, I thought the Astros might go to the World Series. I had no idea the Nationals would go to the World Series. So I made plans to go visit my mother on October 24th to 28th, <laughs> which turned out to be the road games of the World really Series. Do. So the answer is, everywhere I was, that team won.
2: <laughs> I was in Washington
3: for the first two games, uh, which were played in Houston. I then, I'm missing all the games, I then fly to Houston to visit my mother, and the Astros win all three games while I'm there. On the last day I'm there, I said to my mother, And I was joking about this on Twitter, that I better not go back to Washington. I said, you know, if I go home, if I go back, uh, the Nats will win the last two, so maybe I should stay. At which point my mother says, no, she wants the Nationals to win. Get on the plane, (laughs) tells her own son, get on the plane, go home. I get on the plane, come home, and the Nats win the last two. So I am the reason I've brought this all together. done,
0: excellent. Very, very good. Thank
1: you, Will, we Nats
0: fans. Okay. Well, I never thought that I would praise Paul Krugman, <laughs> but um, he did have a column. I, I criticized him in my column just a couple of columns ago, actually, for something else he wrote. But he did one about the uh, trade deficit and about, well, about the, the whole Trump-China Trade thing, and um, I I agree strongly with with this column. Um, he said, you know, that obviously, you know, dealing with China's unfair trade practices is important, and yes, we need to to grapple with that. But that is not what has happened. First of all, Trump focused on the wrong thing. He focused on the trade deficit, which is irrelevant. Everyone agrees it's not important, and by the way, it's gone up. Um, while Trump has been president, um, so let's
2: say it's important. And uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Um,
0: the, as for the you know supposed you know in this new supposed agreement that the China is going to uh, honor intellectual property, it's just a promise. They have made these promises before, and uh, we could have done without the two and a half years of high tariffs just to get another meaningless promise. Um, further, the idea that China is not uh, is paying these tariffs instead of American consumers? Well, no, uh, Chinese export prices have not gone down, which means that the tariffs are being paid by us. Um, and uh, and so it's really the whole thing is a sham and uh, an unsuccessful and uh, wasteful uh, policy that we have now had to bail, not had to, but we've under the trump administration we bailed out the farmers with twice as much as we bailed out the auto companies um so it's it's just not been a success and so i say hats off to krugman for pointing that all out or whoever writes his column these days (laughs) 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 and thank you all we will not meet again this year so happy holidays to everyone and uh merry christmas uh, happy and Hanukkah. happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yes. Thank you. And we will see you in the new year.